He's an emergency physician, a Reserve Army Brigadier General, a Deputy Staff Surgeon in the Office of the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and a former member of Congress. Now he's Chairman of the National Commission on Military, National, and Public Service. Joe Heck joins me in studio. Joe, good to have you in. Thanks, Tom. Good to be here. So this Commission on Military, National, and Public Service has been meeting for a year, year and a half now as we speak, and today is the issuance of an interim report. Tell us what it is that's going to be in that report. Right. So for the uh, last year, uh, the commission has traveled uh, to all nine census districts, 15 states, 24 cities, met with over 300 different organizations in an effort to learn uh, what inspires people to serve. And so the results of that exhaustive effort over the last year will be reflective in the interim report that will be issued later today. And in that report, uh, we lay out um, the charge of the commission, what the commission is all about, uh, what we've learned over the past year. And then the way ahead, what are some of the policy recommendations that we are looking at recommending to Congress, the president and the American people in order to uh, create an ethos, a greater ethos of service and encourage more people to serve in military, national and public service? It must be a little discouraging to have this happen on a day when 800,000 of our dedicated public servants are either furloughed or working without pay. I guess that's just a unfortunate coincidence. Yeah, it certainly is. And, uh, you know, in our definition of the three types of service, uh, public services are uh, those individuals who uh, are employed by state, local, federal, tribal governments. And so it's really targeted uh, at how do you get more folks wanting to uh, enter into a life of public service. And and it it creates quite an irony uh, when we're looking at how do we try to encourage more people to take a government-based job when, as you mentioned, 800,000 of our federal workers are currently furloughed or working without pay. Hopefully that's a short-term situation or relatively short-term. One of the findings that the commission is going to come out with, the idea that civic knowledge is critical, but almost nobody has any civic knowledge of the United States and the system, that's really going deep into the educational system and early childhood experience of people. Right. One of the things we identified uh, throughout our discussions around the country is that in order to encourage today's youth to want to enter into a life of service, that you really have to um, start inculcating them in an idea of service at a younger age. So you got to get to the influencers, parents, teachers, uh, youth leaders, and, and you've got to start earlier in life. If you wait until somebody is in high school or about to go to college, you've lost them. And so in evaluating how do we get to those children earlier, one of the things that I think All of the commissioners may have thought about but really didn't understand the depth of the problem was the lack of civic education. And and there's multiple reasons for that. One is decreasing federal dollars towards civic education. Uh, The other is, as uh, the country has put a greater emphasis on science, technology, engineering, and math uh, professions, high schools and and elementary schools have tried to focus their curricula more on uh, math Uh, and the sciences. And so that crowds out uh, the opportunity to have other programs like civic education. So we almost need a Sputnik-like event (laughs) to get back to equality or somewhere, some more parity between civic and science and technology. Right. I I think it's critical. And one of the things the commission has, I believe, understood and learned over the course of the year is that that strong civic education is really not just the bedrock for a functioning democracy, but also the springboard to a life of service. And you've got some specific recommendations for the government to increase the number of people coming in, including information sharing about opportunities and some kind of a set of better tools for federal agencies to recruit and hire interns. Tell us more about that. So certainly we realize that uh, while there are many people who 
volunteer to serve or enter into service-related occupations, that there are many more who would serve if they knew about the opportunities or if they could actually afford to serve. And so one of the, the areas that we have to focus on is how do we break down the barriers? How do we overcome the obstacles to service? For instance, we know that uh, roughly 20, only 27% of the population is eligible to serve in the military, right? So if I'm a, uh, a young man or woman, I go into a recruiter's office and I want to join the military and I'm told, well, I don't qualify, um, I'm not given in any information about any other service opportunities like the Peace Corps or Teach for America or Service Year. And so we'd like to try to create a one-stop shop, right, a no-wrong door. We know somebody wants to serve. It may not be in the area where they originally thought they wanted to serve, but let's not discount them. Let's provide them other opportunities. We're speaking with Joe Heck. He's chairman of the National Commission on Military, National, and Public Service. And I guess one of the right doors could also lead to civilian service for the armed services. That's often overlooked also. Right. And it's certainly a big area that's currently under discussion within the Department of Defense when you look at uh, what are considered uh, high demand but uh, low intensity skills, right? So like cyber warriors, a lot of expertise uh, out in the civilian community, more so than within the Department of Defense. Uh, So how can we bring in those experts to help defend the nation uh, into a civilian mode, but yet still within the Department of Defense. And I wanted to ask you about some of the ideas and recommendations on selective service and the draft. And that comes around from time to time, that whole idea. I guess those most opposed to it at the moment are the military services themselves. But what did you find with respect to selective service, willingness to serve in the military, and how that could be enhanced? The commission originally was born out of the debate over the selective service system, right? And the debate going on then in Congress about whether or not women should have to register for selective service now that they are eligible to serve in all combat positions. Because everybody still, all males do register at this point, right? Still? Correct. Males uh, over the age of 18 are required to register at their 18th birthday, or they can suffer consequences like the inability to get financial uh, federal financial aid or seek federal employment. Uh, but nowadays, most of the registration is a passive process. Right? You, it happens when you go to get your driver's license or when you go to apply for financial aid on the Internet. Uh, it asks if you've uh, uh, registered. and If you haven't, it takes you to the website. So part of the issue with selective service is that even though uh, males aged 18 to 24 are required to register, many of them don't even know they did. And I think part of the issue is that it it fails to put the requirement or the the obligation to serve our nation in times of uh, a national security emergency is a second thought. Right. So what we're looking at from the selective service standpoint, first, is to answer the question that Congress put before us. Is there still a need for a selective service registration system? And if so, are there modifications that should be made to better reflect a 21st century registration model? So we have to answer the question about whether or not women should register. We should look at whether or not uh, selective service is used just as a combat replacement program, or is it really to bring in all skills that might be necessary uh, to defend the nation in, in, the, in times of a national emergency? Uh, should there be an ongoing registration process? So you, know, you bring somebody in at the age of 18, they really have no skill set. Uh, but by the time they graduate college or may have a profession, now they have different skills that perhaps they should have to go in and, and re-register so we know what those skills are. And I guess by the time you're that age, maybe the basic training might help a little bit <laughs> in some other ways. 
some of the process here, the recommendations go to whom and what comes next after these interim uh, recommendations? So while the interim report rolls out today, we will spend the next several months conducting 14 public hearings over the course of seven days over the next few months to actually vet and discuss some of the potential policy recommendations with panels of experts and also to have the opportunity for the public to participate and offer their thoughts and ideas about so the almost issues. like a roadshow. Exactly. Although... Uh, while we were on the road for the public sensing and town hall sessions, most of our uh, hearings will be done here in the Washington, D.C. area, although we will be making a trip to the FDR library in, in Hyde Park, New York, and also to the George H.W. Bush Library in College Station. So we will then have an idea of what the policy recommendations are. We will then compile a final report which we hope to deliver in March of 2020. And that report goes to Congress, but it's also for uh, the president and the American people. Uh, The goal is to not just create another congressional report that sits on a shelf that nobody does anything with and that it collects dust, but really to use this report as a, a spark to ignite a national conversation about the value and importance of service to the nation. Sounds like you'll have recommendations that cut across the panoply of federal agencies, military and places like the Department of Education even. Certainly. And so when we look at the charge of national, uh, public and military service, uh, we will address all three areas uh, with recommendations on uh, one, how do we create more opportunity? um, How do we expand access? And how do we encourage greater participation? Joe Heck is chairman of the National Commission on Military, National, and Public Service. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. Find a link to more information and to this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. (coughs) Cough and cold season is here. Introducing Ricola Max Throat Care, Ricola's most powerful drop yet. It's the best of Swiss nature wrapped around a powerful liquid menthol center for maximum relief from your worst cough and sore throat. Maximum nature for maximum relief. Try the new Ricola Max now, available in the cold and cough aisle. It's in our nature. If you own a small to medium-sized business that kept employees on payroll through COVID, you may have a big cash refund waiting for you. The Employee Retention Credit is a tax credit of up to $26,000 per employee. And now, more businesses than ever qualify. The experts at RefundsPro.com specialize in cutting through the red tape of qualifying for this government program. Most of their refunds are over $100,000. Even businesses that have received PPP funds may be eligible. And there are absolutely no fees unless you receive a refund. So there's no reason not to apply. If your business experienced shutdowns, limited capacity, supply chain challenges, or reduced revenue due to COVID, you likely qualify. RefundsPro.com has already helped hundreds of businesses. So don't lose the refund you're owed by missing the deadline. Get started today with a free 5-minute questionnaire at RefundsPro.com. That's Refunds with an S, Pro.com.